Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 13th, 2022, and this is show number 875. Well, before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge what you have probably noticed, and it's that podfeet.com is painfully slow lately. I'd love to tell you that I know what the root cause is and I'm fixing it, but I can't say that. I can't tell you what I've tried to do to fix it, though. I've looked at my hosting service to see if maybe I'm running out of RAM or maybe disk, whether my network traffic is saturating or possibly under a a denial of service stack, but everything looks fine in that area. Now, another possible root cause is a misbehaving WordPress plugin. I went through a process of elimination, shutting off plugins, and it would seem to get better after one or another plugin was disabled, but then I'd leave it be for a while and things would get slow again. That's the other part. This is intermittent. Sometimes, like right now, it's horrible. Despite my best attempts at a controlled experiment with my plugins, I've been unable to figure out if any one or more plugins are at the root of the problem. Now, I was very suspicious of Jetpack, but it's it's actually made by the people who write WordPress, so it doesn't seem likely. It's a huge plugin with lots of capabilities, but the only thing I use it for is to let me write my blog posts in Markdown. I've tried three different alternative plugins to let me use Markdown, and every single one of them had some essentially catastrophic different problem. I'm still, I'm not confident Jetpack is the problem. Right before uh, I went on the air, I turned off Jetpack altogether and I tested, and I was getting like 29 seconds for a page load. Anyway, uh, I talked to Bart about it a little bit, and he suggested that I move my database from the droplet on DigitalOcean, where my website is hosted, to a managed database server also by DigitalOcean. I didn't even know that was a thing you could do, but Bart assured me that it's quite normal to separate the application from the database. We set up a play date, we went to work on it, but we ran into a real weird problem, and we have not been able to schedule time to get back to that. So... Um, I'm, I'm running a, another plugin, yeah, adding plugins, uh, called Query Monitor, and it's saying that all of my plugins are okay, but it is showing that I'm a, a single page load of the WordPress interface is like 16 megabytes. I don't know if that's a leading indicator, but that seems like a really big number to me. Anyway, if you're frustrated by how slow it is, Just imagine how agonizing it is for me to work with it all day long, where it's taking 40 seconds to load a single page. I do apologize to all of you for the inconvenience, but know that I'm fully aware and working really hard to figure out what's wrong. You probably remember hearing me talk about how awesome Bodie Grimm's electric vehicle podcast, The Kilowatt Podcast, is a whole bunch of times. He's also been on Chit Chat Across the Pond to talk about fire and electric vehicles, and Steve and I both have been on the Kilowatt podcast. But he just had an even better guest. He had Bart Bouchatz on his show. It's a fun episode because it's from an Irish point of view, where charging electric vehicles and cars in general are very different from the U.S. perspective. Of course, Bart is brilliant and funny, and Bodie is at his self-deprecating best, so it's a magic combo. Now, the easiest way is to add the Kilowatt Podcast to your podcatcher of choice to listen to Bart and Bodie, but I've also included the link in the show notes directly to the February 4th episode of Kilowatt. Give it a listen and enjoy. A few weeks ago, you'll remember Kyle Sheridan came on the show to tell you about the $50 Sofa Baton U1 Universal Remote. As you may recall, the only thing he didn't like about the remote was that you had to be very precise about how you pointed towards your components, like your TV, receiver, or any streaming devices. Steve bought one, and he's noticed the same thing. 
I told you after our conversation that you may want to hang back for a bit before buying because Sofa Baton said on their website that they were coming out with a Wi-Fi version of the remote called the Sofa Baton X1. And I wondered whether that might mean you could do more with home automation with that and you might not have to be so precise in pointing the remote. It also looked cooler. I suggested waiting because their website said it was coming in January of 2022. Well, ever since then, I've been going to their site and searching Amazon for those last couple of weeks that we've been in February here, but it's still not out. I noticed a link to learn more on the Sofa Baton website, so I followed that link and it took me to the Kickstarter project for the X1. They have 5,769 backers who have pledged over $5.2 million. Now, if my cipher is correct, that's around $900 per backer. I sure hope it's not going to be a $1,000 device when it comes out. But more importantly, there's a blog post on the Kickstarter page dated January 29th. In that blog post, it says that the first batch of 2,000 remotes will be shipped to U.S. backers because they're all U.S. standard plugs, but they aren't expected to arrive in customers' hands till early March. Then they explain that the Chinese Spring Festival is approaching, so the workers will be on vacation. So the rest of the backers in the U.S. and in other countries won't see their remotes until early April. So these are people who put money out a long time ago. That means if you want a universal remote before the middle of the year, I've changed my advice to suggest maybe you scoop up one of the U1 sofa batons now, and when and if the X1 comes out, you can relegate that U1 to another room in your house and buy the X1. You're about to hear a really interesting automation solution from Chris Nielsen using a tool called LaTeX. I asked him if he had used a script for his recording, and he said he hadn't, but that he'd write it up for us. He did something way better than I expected. What you're about to hear is kind of the big picture of the problem he solved and how he solved it with LaTeX. In the blog post, he didn't repeat what he said in the audio. Rather, he got into the nitty-gritty detail of how to use the tool LaTeX. If you read his blog post, you'll see some simple examples that would sound like goop if he had tried to describe them in audio. So if the solution he describes here in audio sounds interesting to you, I highly encourage you to go read the blog post to get the complimentary information. With that, let's hear from Chris. G'day Castaways, it's Chris from New Zealand here. I wanted today to briefly talk about a little project I've been working on. My job is a product photographer, and once a week I give my boss a report with what I've been doing and what my backlog is. And I was generating it in numbers, but I really don't like the graphs and numbers. They're fiddly and horrible to create and maintain. They don't look that good. Um, And numbers itself is not really much of a page layout um, program. So I had to think about what my options are. And I thought, hey, let's spend two full weeks learning a whole new system in order to save myself 10 minutes a week. That sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. So I stumbled across this thing called LaTeX, which is spelled L-A-T-E-X, which is a professional typesetting system that dates from the late 70s. Uh, How it works is it compiles plain text files that have text and markup in them. And the markup can control extremely precisely how the document looks. So I set to learning LaTeX, installed it, did the beginner's guide, and that taught me how to do a basic document. But the fonts don't look very good in standard LaTeX. 
and uh, it's pretty limited in its features. So I soon found out that you can extend its functionality with what they call packages. So I had a bit of a Google and I figured out how to make it use modern fonts and how to make the heading look nice and how to make the text look great. And I was really pleased, but how do you do graphs in this thing? So it turns out there's a package for graphs. In fact, there's several packages. So I picked the one that looked the easiest to use and set about making myself some line graphs. Uh, it turns out that the package doesn't just do line graphs, it auto scales and auto sets labels and, and sets up nicely the graph uh, to fit the data you give it. So the idea is that I can just keep chucking data in this thing and it'll just keep on scaling itself. So that's that's pretty cool, that's, that's really easy to maintain. So I got myself a nice looking document after a couple of weeks of effort uh, of learning this thing scratching my head and googling and I got myself a nice document four graphs and some summary numbers underneath so that's really good so I did that for a few weeks entering the numbers manually but after a little while the document starts to get a bit unwieldy because you've got all the data inside this document along with the formatting so I found another package that you can uh, import data from external text files and I was able to pull the numbers out of the main document put them into the CSV files so now all I have to do is run my reports of our accounting system, add them to the bottom of the various CSV files, and when I compile this um, document, it um, the numbers just appear in the graph. So that's, that's awesome. But what about these summary numbers? So uh, I thought, okay, let's make a shortcut. So I made some shortcuts. The first shortcut goes through the various CSV files, and it grabs the last two lines, puts the numbers from those inside containers in data jar. Uh, another shortcut then has the text of my uh, my source file inside it with placeholders for those summary numbers. And all the shortcut does is it goes and it does a replace command and it swaps out the placeholders for the uh, numbers from the data jar containers that I saved earlier. So now we have a, a nice source file with, with the uh, all the summary numbers updated and then drops that text into a text file and runs the LaTeX compiler on that text file and out pops a PDF file with all my graphs, all my summary numbers, all beautiful. Uh, the last step in the shortcut is to open the file in preview. So once I run my numbers out of our accounting system and put them into the CSV files, all I've got to do is run this main shortcut and five seconds later, a lovely looking PDF file pops out, ready to print or email and... Um, Job done, and it gives me this amazing sense of satisfaction that uh, I never got with doing it in numbers. Pretty happy with that. Um, thanks for listening. I hope it wasn't too boring, and uh, see you around. Well, Chris, that was not boring at all. I thought that was really cool. I've heard about LaTeX for a long time, but I've never seen it uh, actually used. And uh, again, see, reading the blog post and hearing your description was perfect. Hi, my name is Marty, and today... I'm going to be talking about the Elgato Wave XLR. This is a podcasting interface. I am blind, so the problem to be solved here is, for me, actually, finding a podcasting interface that's simple to use and gets the job done without too much configuration or uh, too much adjusting buttons and knobs, all of those good things. Most of the podcasting interfaces that are out there have lots of extra buttons, extra knobs, 
even if they're totally analog. And most of the digital interfaces are not accessible. So I came across this Elgato Wave XLR, which turns out to be really great in many ways. First of all, it's really simple to use. So in shape, it's square, it's pretty small, and it sits at a wedge, which means it leans forward towards you. So the back is taller than the front, and so it's always facing you at a slant. Now, on the front, you have a one large round knob, and this knob controls everything on the interface. It has volume for the output gain volume. It has the headphone volume as well as um, phantom power. And you control everything from the one knob. And it's pretty simple to use. There's also lights that go around the knob. So when the lights are white, then you're not muted. And when the lights are red, you are muted. And muting is really simple. You just slide your fingers across the top on the back and you mute and slide your fingers again and you're unmuted. There's no specific button to push. It's just slide your fingers across the top and it knows to either mute or unmute you. Super simple, really great. Now, on the back, you have one USB-C port, and this is great because you can plug it into a laptop, it'll boot right up, it takes up a small footprint, and you don't need to find any AC wall power. So that's great. Also, it has one XLR port on the back to plug in your microphone. And this is good and bad for some. It's really good for someone who needs a small footprint and they're doing only recording themselves. It wouldn't be great if you have a need for multiple microphones as this, again, only has one XLR port on the back. And then you also have a headphone jack on the back as well. So again, if you are in a situation where you need something that's super portable and super easy to use, you can toss this in your bag. It's easily uh, light enough to take it with you and plug it into a laptop with USB-C and everything else plugs into the interface and you're easily up and running. I uh, looked on their website and it goes for about $200 on Elgato's website. And uh, I also looked on Amazon and the price fluctuates a little bit by about $50. I've seen it anywhere for about $150 and that goes up to about $200 depending on where and when you buy it. So again, this is the Elgato Wave XLR podcasting interface. Super simple to use, a really great option for someone who doesn't need a lot of bells and whistles and just wants to easily get the job done quick and dirty. And there you go. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Marty. Uh, this was fantastic. This is Marty's first contribution to the show, but uh, I thought he did a spectacular job here. After I received his audio and his written review of the Elgato Wave XLR, I immediately bought one. The problem I'm trying to solve is twofold. Steve's well-loved but very old Shure MVI XLR interface may be failing, maybe not, we're not sure, but we're getting some audio clicks on his voice during the live show. He can also see audio dropouts in the Mimo Live software on his end. 
I'd been crawling for the internets looking for a small, simple, single XLR input interface, and all of the ones I found were either too complex or they hid the inputs coming out of the front of the device. I gotta tell you, having a thick XLR cable coming straight out onto your keyboard is obviously a bad solution. Marty's review of the Wave XLR came at the exact right time. There's also a reasonable chance that I'll replace my excessively complicated and fussy Universal Audio Apollo Solo Thunderbolt interface with a Wave XLR of my own. I'll report back on how well the Wave XLR works for both Steve and me, but in initial use, I can say that it's just as lovely as Marty described it. Simple and elegant. Also, don't be surprised if you don't hear from Marty from time to time. We've been cooking up some ideas in the background about some collaboration we might do, and I'm really looking forward to that. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. How do I? What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, this week's dumb question comes from my longtime friend, Mark. I've known Mark since I was in high school, so we go way back. He got solar for his house right around the same time as us and got an electric vehicle around the same time. He asked me this question. Hope you all are doing well. Had a solar EV car question. Given how Edison works, is it better to charge my car at night when rates are low but no solar generation or during the daytime when rates are up and yet max solar generation? Now, you would think there would be an easy and obvious answer to this question. I mean, he only gave me two choices. Steve and I are both engineers with advanced degrees, and we've been studying these facts behind the question and arguing our respective interpretations of the subject for at least six months. It's surprisingly complicated, and every time we think we understand it, the next time we look at it, our interpretations have changed. When Mark asked this question, we decided to write it all down, and then I would write an article about it so we can refer back to it every time we get confused and we start arguing about it again. The first thing to understand is something called net energy metering, or NEM, sometimes called simply net metering. Net energy metering is a billing mechanism that allows people who generate renewable energy to push energy into the grid when the sun is out or the wind is blowing, depending on what kind of energy they're creating, and then use energy from the grid when they're not generating. The way NEM is applied varies from state to state and country to country, if it's used at all. Some places don't use it. Everything I'm going to describe to you here only applies if you have NEM where you live. I can only talk about the way NEM works in California because I'm not studying every single country and state's rules, but the logic should be useful if you can find the rules for your locale. California is currently under NEM 2.0 with a proposal being worked on for NEM 3.0, but don't get me started on that because NEM 3.0, as it's currently proposed, is a dumpster fire and we really hope it doesn't happen. If you'd like to read all about the current version of NEM in California, I've uh, included a link to the California Public Utilities Commission. While I'm going to use California-specific information, I think you could walk through the same logic and math if you live in another state or country that does use net energy metering. The first step is to determine how you get credit for the energy you generate. In California, our energy generation and usage are recorded every month, and at the end of 12 months, there's a true-up. If you generate more energy than you consume over the 12-month period, then the electric company actually pays you for the excess you generate, albeit at the market rate, which is currently running about 2 to 3 cents per kilowatt hour. It's chump change, but it's something. So the first and most simplistic answer to Mark's question is, if Mark generates more than he uses, it doesn't matter what time he charges his car because he never pays for it. 
Now, let's assume that Mark uses more energy over a 12-month period than he generates via his solar panels. The excess energy he uses will be charged out in a much more complicated methodology. It is ludicrously complicated, and it's why Steve and I have had so much fun debating this topic. When you go on NEM, when you get your renewable energy up and running, you are required in California to go on what's called a time-of-use billing plan. The concept behind time-of-use billing is to encourage the customer to move their energy usage from when the grid is under high demand to when it's under low demand. The best way to get customers to change their behavior is to give them financial incentives to do what you want them to do. If you know it costs more to run your dishwasher right after dinner than it does during the night, you're more likely to wait until the demand on the grid is lower. The grid is under the most demand in the evenings when most people come home from work, say around 5 to 8 p.m. So the time of use rates are much higher during that time period. I think this design is fantastic and it's completely logical. But like many things I was personally involved in, and in some cases responsible for in my own work, the desire to keep optimizing turns what starts as a good idea into a far too complex algorithm for normal humans to understand. Like Steve and me, Mark gets his electricity from Southern California Edison. Their version of time of use breaks the day up into three spans of time called super peak, I'm sorry, super off peak, mid peak, and off peak with three different rates. You'll notice I didn't ever say on peak, but wait for it. That's just for the winter. In the summer, they only use two time spans. They're called on peak and off peak except on weekends and holidays when the on-peak pricing times changed to be called mid-peak and it's a completely different rate. You see why this is so nuts and why Mark didn't immediately know the answer to his question? But don't lose hope. We can figure this out. The reason all of these rates are important is that if at the end of the year you use more energy than you produce, the electric company tracks every kilowatt of energy you used by the time of day you used it throughout the year. This is recorded every month on your bill. When they do the 12-month true-up, if you've exceeded the energy you generated, they use this time-of-use billing to figure out how much to bill you. Now, I'm not going to read out all the numbers because that would be super boring, but I did create a numbers spreadsheet, and there's a screenshot of some of the things in the show notes, and I use conditional highlighting to show you what all of these rates look like. Armed with this vast array of options, let's be thankful Mark only asked for two timeframes. He asks for charging at night when rates are low or charging during the daytime when rates are high, but he's generating energy. Mark asks the question in the winter. Turns out in the middle of the night, Mark's energy costs 33 cents per kilowatt hour. But while he's generating energy, Mark's energy actually costs less at 29 cents per kilowatt hour. When Mark asked his question, I also thought energy was less expensive in the middle of the night than during the day when we were generating solar energy, but we were both wrong. We now know another version of the answer to Mark's question. If Mark consumes more than he generates, it's better for him to charge during the day when he's generating energy. I didn't want to stop there, though. If it costs less to charge while generating solar energy, how much does it actually save him? Mark drives a Hyundai Kona, which has a 64-kilowatt-hour battery. The difference in cost between the off-peak and mid-peak rates is $0.04 per kilowatt-hour. To fill his battery from 0 to 100%, which of course you would never do, it would save him $2.56 if he charged during the day than in the middle of the night. Let's put that in perspective. I wouldn't throw $2.56 out of the window, but that's only a little more than half the cost of one gallon of regular gas in California right now. 
the rate is $4.68 for regular gasoline. So between the high or between the nighttime and daytime, the cost is half the price of one gallon of gas. I think that really highlights how inexpensive it is to charge an electric vehicle at home versus buying gas for an ICE car, doesn't it? So we have our second answer to Mark's question. Answer number two is if Mark consumes more than he generates during the winter, it actually saves him money to charge his EV during the day. But it might not be enough to stress about. If he really needs to charge at night, he should just charge at night. Perhaps Mark is also curious, though, about how the bath works out in the summer. It turns out that in a comical stroke of genius, the committee that designed the Southern California Edison's time of use billing decided to make the rate from 8 p.m. all the way through the day to 5 p.m. the same rate. So in the summer, it's almost always 30 cents per kilowatt hour, except during the 5 to 8 p.m. time. So that gives us our third answer. If Mark consumes more than he generates during the summer, it doesn't matter whether he charges during the day or late at night. It's the exact same cost. Did I tell you this was complicated? So there is a time of day Mark probably definitely does not want to charge his car. And that's between 5 and 8 p.m. During the winter, that 5 to 8 p.m. rate is 72% more than the daytime rate. And during the summer, the 5 p.m. rate skyrockets to more than double the daytime rate. This was perhaps the biggest shock of this study for me. In the winter, Mark would spend over $13 more to charge between 5 and 8 p.m. And in the summer, it would cost him a whopping $26 more. So answer number four is, whatever you do, Mark, do not charge your car between 5 and 8 p.m., especially in the summer, if you consume more power than you generate. So I know this is off topic from Mark's original question, but when I compared the extra cost of charging during the night versus the day to the price of a gallon of gas, it got me wondering whether I could calculate from all of this data how much Mark saves by driving an EV instead of an internal combustion engine car. We call them ICE cars. We're in luck because Mark just happens to have purchased a rare car because the Hyundai Kona comes in both an EV version and a gas version. In an article from Motor Trend, I was able to find the range of the two vehicles. I was also able to determine that the gas version uses regular unleaded fuel, which is the cheapest possible gas. While the EV Kona has a respectable 258-mile range on a 64-kilowatt-hour battery, the gas version has a very long range of 396 miles on a 13.2-gallon tank. Using the current regular gas price in the state of California that I talked about earlier, $4.68 per gallon according to AAA, filling the gas car will cost $62. But we can't really use that because that, that could go 396 miles, not 258. So we have to prorate that total cost down to the smaller 258 miles of range. I included all the math in the show notes, but when the math is said and done, Mark is saving $22 every time he fills his car with electrons instead of dead dinosaurs. The bottom line is that it's better for Mark to charge his car during the day when he's generating solar energy than at any other time of the day. In the best case, if he's generating more energy than he's consuming, it doesn't cost him anything at all no matter when he charges. If he consumes more than he generates, then he definitely wants to avoid charging his car between 5 and 8 p.m. I hope this process of analysis can help others to to run their own math. I'm sure your rates are different, so your times of use are different, and you may not have time of use at all, and don't even get me started on how to size a battery to go with your solar.
If you really enjoy the NoSillaCast, Chit Chat Across the Pond, and Programming by Stealth, and get value out of what you learn here, or maybe you just get entertained, have you ever thought about maybe throwing a few dollars into the Podfeet podcast coffers, maybe using PayPal? You could go to podfeet.com slash PayPal because you know it, everything good starts with podfeet.com. And when you're at PayPal, you could just type in any old number you like and send it my way. It's not cheap to run the show, and every person who donates a bit of money helps to keep the microphones on. One of my favorite articles I ever wrote was called Sleep Tracking is Stupid. My more favorite article, though, was the rebuttal article by Jill from the Northwoods called Sleep Tracking Isn't Stupid. Last week, I told you all about the Stream Deck, and when I got to choosing which Stream Deck you might need, I said that I couldn't see how the six-button Stream Deck would work for anyone. Guess who has a six-button Stream Deck? Welcome to the show, Jill. Hi. Yeah, I like to be contrary. <laughs> you really do. You're you're the the arbitrary person, but you do it so nicely. I enjoy the heck out wow. of it. So that's that's fine. So you actually were uh, more into the stream deck, I think, than you kind of helped me get into it and inspired me to uh, one of the 48 people who inspired me to get it going. Um, maybe you can talk about what you did because you actually have two stream decks and now you've bought a third device from them. That's correct. Well, it started with so many people in my life also telling me how wonderful it is and how I would really enjoy it. And every time I looked at it, I could not feel like there was a use case for me. I couldn't imagine what it would do. I didn't know what it would help me with. And it went on sale around Christmas time, according to your Slack group. And I thought, well, let's just give it a shot and see what it could do. And the problem I was trying to solve primarily had to do with podcast recording. I wanted to have a hard button that would allow me to start and stop recording without keyboard commands, without me moving my mouse and starting recording and then stopping it. I felt like my brain was being taken up by command strokes and I just wanted to focus on recording. So huh. initially I bought... Oh, so, so you were thinking it's easier to take your hands off the keyboard and reach over to the stream deck and push a button than hit the space bar or command R for recording? As long as I found good icons that represented exactly what it was doing, yes, I think that I had my finger always on the button for stop and start recording. Oh, oh, okay, right, right, right. Because when you're recording, your hands aren't really on the keyboard, are they? No, duh, that was stupid. Okay. Right. So I ordered the regular size Stream Deck, right. which is the middle version of it. Okay. And it's 15, I liked 15 it. buttons, I think. Yeah, 15 buttons. And I liked it a lot, but what I was doing was bringing it upstairs and downstairs because I have another computer downstairs where I actually do the editing for my podcast. And yeah, I thought, so this is not usable. Let me, let me interject here. So Jill, um, I, Steve complains all the time that I try to make my computer setup and my audio setup and my video setup as complicated as possible. I am lear I'm standing at the feet of the master of making things complicated. So you're you're not only using an upstairs and downstairs computer to do your audio recordings for your fabulous podcast, uh, you are also using a Mac and Windows. I am using a Mac and Windows, that's correct. Because I'm getting into learning Mac, but I know Windows very well. And the location that my Windows machine is in is much nicer, much more comfortable. But the audio recording is better up where your Mac is, right? That's right. It has good sound acoustics, and then I can set the microphone and all the equipment up on a desk. Okay. Okay. So you record up on your Mac upstairs, and you're uh, editing downstairs on your Windows machine, but you were dragging your 15-button uh, stream deck up and down the stairs? Up and down the stairs, and I realized that wasn't going to work. It was still Christmas time, 
and they were still on sale. <laughs> Why didn't I get them on sale? I try to wait until they're as high a price as possible. <laughs> That's a good plan. <laughs> so I looked at my situation that really upstairs, I'm only recording. And so all I needed was just mute, start recording, stop recording, three buttons. I don't really do a lot of other things up here. Mac Mini, which is in this room, is primarily for automatic processes like publishing my podcast. Okay, so so you're recording now on a on a MacBook Pro. Uh, so I'm recording right now on Mac Mini. So I do use it to record the podcast. I also use it as a machine to go through processes like publish the podcast. Okay, that's okay. about all I do on here. Okay, um, so. Why do you have to mute it if you're doing a solo podcast or is this, oh, you're not always solo. I'm primarily solo, but I cough and I breathe and my cats are meowing. And <laughs> so, so it's primarily the, for the cats. That's what the stop button is for. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Jill creates one long giant thing and then goes and edits it down, right? That's right. And okay. so that was the secondary issue I was trying to solve with Stream Deck and where I found it the most useful was editing it, clipping out breathing, clipping out cat noises, chopping out a sentence that didn't add anything to my podcast. And I found that so beneficial, more beneficial almost than the one of having one with recording. It was just so much better to edit with it. So that's why the, the, the big girl one lives downstairs with the PC? That's right, yep. And then I use other use cases with it that make some sense with the PC as well. So sticking but, with with the editing, uh, Jill and I both use the same application, uh, Hindenburg, for our audio recording and editing software. You, what, how did you figure out how to add buttons that talk to that application? Primarily by looking at the Hindenburg cheat sheets on command con commands. Oh, okay. Key, if they had keystrokes, that meant you could do something with it. That's right. And yep. and they're really good at keystrokes. They've got tons of them. They have a lot of them. They're very well documented. And so playing around, seeing with what I like to do with it, which was primarily cut, copy, clear, all sorts of editing types of things as compared to up here, which was recording. Okay. Okay. So that's why having a lot of buttons. So on the upstairs, uh, little, little woman, <laughs> little woman, little lady, little girl, <laughs> I don't know what you call the small one, the baby one. Do you, uh, have you gone to a second screen on that or the six buttons are more than enough? The six buttons are more than enough. It's, again, really just three buttons I use primarily with this Mac Mini. Maybe it's Stream Deck Mini to go with my Mac Mini. <laughs> there you go. Little tiny baby one. Baby so, so what other applications are you using uh, the Stream Deck downstairs for with your, uh, with your Windows machine? Downstairs, I primarily use it for some Windows command, making things louder, quieter muting a particular device that's making noise. I use Snagit. When I read books to use on my podcast, I'm going through and creating screenshots and making an outline from the books. So between Snagit and Word, I have commands set up to copy and paste things into Word. Okay. And then- yeah. Are those like the, I don't know that much about the Stream Deck yet, but uh, multi-action, I think they're called? I haven't done that yet. It's still two actions because okay. honestly, I haven't had a lot of time to play with it, but it's good. I'm, gonna, I'm getting better at it and I'm getting, I'm learning how it works. So the buttons are getting better as I go. 
That's interesting. So uh, any other applications you're using it with on your Windows machine? Sure thing. I do Office. I've set up some basic Office commands with Stream Deck. I've also used CorelDRAW, which I use for photo editing, making graphics for the podcast. I do some basic opening folders, opening websites, um, essentially it, just that. It's oddly pleasing to open websites with it. Yeah. I, I don't it know. Really, it's like, how hard is it for me to type P-O and have my my uh, browser open the rest of podfeed.com? But I still push button to do it because it's fun. Yeah, it is fun and it's very available and visual. And maybe that's the reason why it's better. And I have a number of games, too, that have some commands that I started setting up. I play Flight Simulator from Microsoft. Mm. So getting all my flying commands into Stream Deck was helpful to me. <laughs> you mentioned Microsoft Office. Uh, what kind of stuff do you do in Office with it? Uh, I write my podcast in Word. I use OneNote religiously for everything that I try to capture. And that works a lot like Word. No, and but I haven't really... What do you use the Stream Deck for with, with Office? Oh, just some... Uh, like opening a new document, saving a document, if I don't store it online, adding certain text. I have an outline for my podcast, so I paste in the text for my podcast outline that's there. Okay. Do you, do you have a command to copy it and a command to paste it, or do you use a text expansion utility like Text Expander? Well, right now, because that's on my Windows machine, I'm using... I'm, I'm still working on that, to be honest, but I think I can just use Stream Deck by itself. I think it has a, a text pasting ability. Right. Where does the text come from? You got to copy it from somewhere, don't you? Right. I believe it actually, I think I, I've been working on something where I think it actually comes from the actual command itself that you put the string of text oh, okay. inside the command. That's where I'm getting. Oh. And now I'm starting to work with shell commands and starting to do Windows, like Bluetooth and different types of controls. Oh, that's fun. Are you, are you doing any home automation stuff with it? Not yet. Uh, my Windows machine is far away from my home system. Is I, I just have never connected them. Oh, my okay. lights don't go through it. Nothing. So Okay. Okay. So I mentioned up front that you were actually um, so addicted to the Stream Deck lifestyle that you bought their newest device. And why don't you tell us what that is? Well, that came on Monday, and that is the Stream Deck pedal. And as soon as I saw it announced through my email, I knew that was my missing device. I had to have it. And I tried relentlessly to order it on their website, and the ordering page was broken. So I contacted support that I was so dedicated to getting it. Please, it's not working. Your website's not letting me add it to the basket. And maybe a couple hours later, it worked. And so I ordered it. So wait, what is it? it? It is a pedal. It's a three-pedal device that you can step on for left, right, and center. You can also adapt the springs inside of it. How hard of a press do you want it to be before it actually works? And some people even deaden the middle pedal so they can rest their foot there and just keep the left and right active. But that way, I don't use the buttons to stop and start recording. It's left foot, right foot. Oh, that's really interesting about dampening the spring so that you could rest your foot a little bit, not have to always be in tension hovering above it kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I learned that um, through some YouTube videos. That is that is a crazy device. So you're just starting to get starting to get ready with that. But there can't be too much to learn because you can probably only assign three functions or can you double tap or? 
you, yeah, you can assign three functions. There are different ways of, I think there's like a press and hold if I understand the instructions correctly. So if maybe I wanted to mute, that only worked while I was pressing and holding. Oh, okay. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. But for recording, I think I just really want the start and stop recording. And since I drive and I owned a sewing machine, foot pedals felt really natural to me, uh, starting and stopping. You know what, though, Jill? I have this vision of the future is you're going to be sitting at what's basically like a pipe organ, right? Where you've got all of the pedals down below and you're just going crazy with your feet doing this. That might be the case, but I think it's going to really work. And it may actually replace, sadly, Stream Deck Mini, which will then go in my bag for when I go record podcasts away from my house and for when I travel. Oh, that's actually not a bad idea. I We did the live show from Lindsay's house recently, and I had just gotten the Stream Deck all set up, and I had all my nice buttons, and I got to use them one night. And then a week later, we were down at Lindsay's house, and I didn't have it, and I was I was already sad. But I'm afraid I won't – I might not get addicted to it because if it's not always there, but we don't travel that often, so maybe it still will work. But that's an right. interesting idea to have a Stream Deck Mini as your as your travel device. Yeah, I think once I get used to the pedal, I think uh, that's exactly what it'll become. Yeah, since you're only using three buttons, right? That's right. Maybe the other three buttons will, maybe you'll think of something else fun to do with them too. (laughs) That might be. I actually play Forza 5, which is a driving game for Microsoft. and, Mm. And I thought... Well, I couldn't hurt to have a gas pedal and a brake, <laughs> so it probably will do that too. Well, maybe uh, maybe you can do a little review for us if you ever get around to, uh, if you get the pedal working and doing anything interesting, that would sure be fun to hear about. Yeah, I'm excited to try it and I'm excited to do more with it and also the Stream Deck that I have. Great, great. Well, hey, thanks for coming on. This was uh, This was fun. Yeah, thanks so much. You can tell that I really love talking to Jill. Any subject she wants to talk about, man, I am all over it. If uh, I forget if I mentioned it when we were talking, but you can listen to Jill on her own podcast, Start With Small Steps at smallstepspod.com or look for it in your podcatcher of choice. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me whenever you want at allison at podfeet.com. I love to hear suggestions unless it's about how slow my website is, because unless it's how to fix how slow my website is, that would be a good one. Uh, if you have any questions, send them on over, send them dumb questions, whatever you got. You can also follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you want to join in on the conversation between other no castaways, you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. It is so much fun there. You can talk to me, the other lo- lovely no castaways. You could even talk to Bart. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon, or as I mentioned, with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Michael Babcock did for the second time he'd been gone for a long time, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.